Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I've got good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, the good news is I've got two new books available, uh, the first of which is Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. I wrote the first draft of Rob's story when I was 11 years old and in the fifth grade. That version is included with the new edition, complete with full illustrations by 11-year-old me. Um, I have been rethinking and rewriting that story ever since through many, many different variations. At one point, it was a template for the Banneker Bones trilogy. Uh, it has been through a lot of changes, but I'm most excited about this version that's available to you now. Uh, Rob is an adventure-seeking verb. He burrows to the surface with his bunch on a rainy spring morning just to be swooped up by a passing robin. Uh, she carries him way up into the sky, but not to worry, he wriggles free only to land on the roof of a human house. How's he going to get down? And if he does, he's surrounded by nasty yellow jackets, a sizzling hot driveway, colonies of warring ants, a giant spider. There's a whole pond full of worm-hungry koi. When you're a worm, uh, almost everything in your average human backyard is out to eat you. So Rob's got his work cut out for him. Uh, it's an exciting, action-packed story that I also think is a little bit funny. Uh, I hope that you'll check that out. Uh, my other novel is Goodbye to Grandma, and that one is about sixth grader Haley Smith, uh, who comes of age by coming to terms with the death of her grandmother. Uh, it is my most personal story. When I was in the sixth grade, my grandmother died, and I was unable to cry at her funeral. It took me a very long time to process my grief. And since I'm publishing this book now, some would say I'm still processing it. Um, I hope that you'll check out both of those books. I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope that you'll feel compelled to write a review, help me promote them in any way that you can. That would mean the world to me. Uh, so that's the good news. Two new books available for you right now. Um, the less good news uh, is that I, have, my personal circumstances have changed in such a way that I am not going to be able to continue hosting the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, it has been one of the great thrills of my life to have chatted with so many amazing guests. I can't believe the, the people I've had the, the opportunity to sit down and talk with. I have learned so much about writing, publishing, life, and I hope you've learned some things as well. Um, I hope the show has been helpful to you, esteemed audience. I, I couldn't have done it without you, and I so appreciate your support uh, through the years as we've done this. Um, I don't know if or when I'll be able to come back to the show. It's my hope that someday that I will. Um, but in the meantime, I want to offer my most sincere thank you to you and to everyone who has been a part of this show and, and just the incredible experience it's been. We're going to go up to episode 212, and then after that, there will not be any additional episodes for at least a while. But stay subscribed to the feed. Um, hopefully at some point I'll, I'll be able to come back to you, if not to host a regular podcast. I'll at least have some updates for you about some other things I may be working on. Also keep an eye on middlegradeninja.com. Uh, every week I end the show with God willing I'm alive. I'll see you next week. But today I'll just say God willing I'm alive. I hope to see you soon. Oh, esteemed audience, I could not be more excited. Today we have the incredible good fortune to be joined by Crystal D. Giles. Uh, Crystal, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you not leaving during that very long introduction. <laughs> thanks, thanks for hanging around. 
So uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by uh, summarizing either their book or their biography. Why would I do that when you're right here and could do a better job of it than I could? Uh, so please give esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Okay. Well, I write middle grade books. Um, I am an accountant turned author. So we can talk a lot more about that if you want to later. But um, my first book debuted in 2021. It's called Take Back the Block. Um, I was a pandemic debut, which was a bit difficult. But thankfully, I have another book in the world. It's out um, February 28th. It's called Not an Easy Win. I will hold it up for anyone viewing. Um, so I'm happy to be um, on my way to being a sophomore um, author of two books. I started writing, I guess, right around the time my son was born. He's seven and a half now. So um, I had a, a bit of a career shift, but mostly I write about Black families, Black communities, Black children, and trying to make them the center and the heroes of their own stories. Um, we could talk more about both books, but in a nutshell, that's that's what I write and that's what I do. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about everything and anything and everything. I am uh, because esteemed audience, uh, some I don't talk about it often on the show, but I, my background is in finance as well. I was a stockbroker and then I was a mortgage loan originator and a financial consultant. All the world's most boring things <laughs> while I was uh, working on my fiction um, early in the morning but before starting my day. Um, I greatly appreciate that background. I think it brings a lot of practical, um, a lot of practicality to your approach, I assume. And also it's going to pay the bills in a way that writing so often just can't. Um, what does, um, I, I've heard you talk elsewhere about how you are a person who loves data and analyzes everything. Um, what does that bring to you, uh, to your writing career? So I can tell you when I first started writing, I looked at it as a disadvantage. I thought all of these people have been in education. They've been teachers. They know how to reach students. And I feel like I didn't. And I approached everything from my critique group. <laughs> people would gather, they would start talking and we would be like 45 minutes in and we had not written anything or not talked about any books. They were just conversing. And I'm used to like, this meeting starts at 8.30, we're ready to go at 8.30. So I was like in this business analytical space and I would look around and go, well, no one's doing work. They're just talking. <laughs> and so right away, I felt like it was a disadvantage. So probably for the first couple of years, I would kind of hide that bit of myself and I wouldn't talk much about it. And then after I started to query and get out in the world, I thought, I have to look at this more in a business way because that's the way my brain works. So I started really looking at what was being published by whom, what publishers did what, started looking at more data, statistics. And I realized because I, I first started writing picture books that the type of picture books I was writing, the odds of that being published first, they were slim. Any publishing is slim, but that felt very slim. And so I kind of pivoted and I said, you know what, I'll try some some long form fiction, which is when I started writing middle grade. And at that time, there were very few books 
that had like black boy main characters and I had a story with a black boy main character. I looked at um, kind of the, the statistics on who was publishing those books, who was getting book deals. And so I started to use a lot of that kind of research and I brought it into my writing. Um, so that first helped me from a market perspective. And then I started looking at the overall process of writing, not in like, well, I have to write all of these beautiful transitions and descriptions in my first draft. I started to look at it like the way I would write any type of any type of business document or business email, just get start to finish, then go back and revise and edit. So it helped me with my process. Um, I can get a first draft finished a lot faster because I'm not trying to make it pretty or make the language beautiful. I'm just doing the work, which is what I have been traditionally good at. Um, and now that I'm into the business of publishing, I try to really look at it um kind of objectively too, from everything to sales, to the way marketing works, that has become a piece of the process that I don't avoid. I kind of run more to, well, tell me this, how does this work? And really understand the process um, and try to take my personal feelings out of it. So it has helped me um, after I embraced it, it has helped me. Let's uh, get into the weeds a little bit because the audience for this show, uh, they they love data, I assume. And if they don't, it's free, whatever. <laughs> but do when when you're when you're trying to figure out what the odds are of a picture book versus a middle grade versus I don't know, maybe you considered a romance or I don't know what other genres you might have considered. What specific data are you looking at to make that determination? Well, at the time, this has been some years ago. There was an author tracking. Um, what was being published. And so she would put that out there. Um, and I can't remember her name and I, I won't botch it, but she had like these um, statistics that she was collecting over time and she would put it out there. So I found it and I started looking at it. And then I would also look at um, like the Publishers Weekly. I had a subscription at one time. I would kind of look at that and see what publishers were publishing, what types of books. At the time, like I said, I was writing picture books, so I would see lots and lots of deals come up. Also, lots of YA deals were happening at that time. And if you kind of follow the children's book market, you can tell that YA has become a bit, um, I won't say oversaturated, but it's a bit full. And lots of agents were looking for middle grade titles because they didn't have that many um, submissions coming to them. And you could see a bit of a lag in the middle grade space. Um, and so lots of Asians were asking for that and they would put that on their manuscript wish list or whatever. And I was kind of toying around with a novel and I was a little bit afraid to get into that long form fiction. And I said, you know what? I think the general odds are better for me if I focus on this novel. And so that's what I ended up doing. And it ended up being successful for me. Um, maybe not because the statistics pointed me that way, but it did help me focus. And I think that focus is what I needed um, to kind of push me in that general direction. Um, I don't know if there's great data floating out there now in terms of what's being published, what, what does the market need? I think if we knew that, we'd all be really rich. But um, 
if you pay attention to what agents are asking for, there's also a lot of those infographics that come out, particularly on diversity numbers, what's being published. All of those generally help me too, because it's like, okay, there's a huge hole here. And that's what I write. So let me focus on the things um, that I like to write because there's a need for them in the market. I think you absolutely know where the data is and are just shrewd enough not to go <laughs> blabbing about it on a podcast. <laughs> so, um, well, let's uh, go go back uh, way back because you're a big reader as a child, right? You go to the library and, and collect every last book you can. When when I was a kid, I for sure was a library kid. Um, I am the youngest of four. And so I often found myself kind of alone. My older siblings had other things going on. And my mom would um, take me to the library or I would get to the library um, from a friend or a neighbor or something. And I would just come home with stacks of books. And um, yeah, I sometimes say books are my first friends because I, I had moments where I did not have a whole lot of um, friends and I would just kind of feel lonely. And so I would just read. Um, I love series at the time. So it was a bunch of like babysitters club, the, the old school versions, not the, not the graphics that are out now. Um, I read a like boxcar children, some of that kind of stuff. I read a lot of just series and I just consumed books and I, I loved it. I, I absolutely, I never thought of myself as a writer, but I absolutely love just reading. I love kind of the solitude of it, I think. Um, and books took me to, as we all know, it just took me to another world and another place. Um, and so I definitely remember some of my favorite moments as a kid was just me kind of by myself reading. Were you thinking at the time that maybe one day I'll grow up to be an author? Was that ever, ever on the menu? I don't think it was ever a, a thought at the time, ever. I mean, I think as a kid, Sometimes I would act out like a play <laughs> or some sort of thing I watched, but I never even thought about the process of writing it. it. I never thought of myself as a writer, as a young person. It just it just never crossed my mind. And then as I became older, I really loved math and I really loved. So that became the thing that I thought I was good at. Um, and so that's where I put my focus and it never really occurred to me, honestly, that I could be good at more than one thing. I say that sometimes to, to, um, readers at presentations at schools. And every time I hear myself say that it sounds sad, but it's true. I, I never thought that I could be good at more than one thing. And so I just figured, oh, well, math is my thing. That's what I'll do. So I, I never thought of myself as a writer, to be honest. Well, I uh, can't do much to change the past, but hopefully every time you you say that about yourself, somebody's listening to the audience like, wait a minute, I could be better at more than one thing. Now they can't. So that, that, that that's the sad part of the story. But someone else. <laughs> when, when did, uh, I, well, I never ask um, about the inspiration for becoming an accountant, but I assume there was one. When did you know you were good at math and what evidence did you have? When I was in high school, um, 
I was a part of this, and this is kind of odd. And I guess maybe other schools have it too. At my high school, they had these academies and it was just a public high school. And, and to be honest, it was, it was a fairly low funded high school, but we had these academies. There were three of them. There was a medical academy, a communications academy, and a finance academy. And you could um, kind of enter one of them and you had to fill out paperwork or whatever. Um, and out of the three, I like math the most. Um, I had no interest in communications. <laughs> and so I decided that I would do the Academy of Finance. And um, we were doing very low level accountant work. We had like the green sheets, the very old school boxes, you know, the green paper. And we were doing actual like accounting work out of these workbooks. Um, <laughs> and I loved it. I, I, I don't know why it was so exciting for me, but it was. It was like real world situations um, in a book. And then you had to like go write out the accounting problem and figure it out. They had little T accounts and the whole thing. And so I started that. I probably was a sophomore in high school when I when I started with the Academy of Finance. And it went through my senior year. And before I was a junior, I decided that I would be an accountant. And um, and so I kind of followed that path. And like I told you, I was good at it. And I said, well, this is the thing that I will do. And so I was pretty decisive. And so I went, I went, <laughs> I went to college and got an accounting degree. And so that was kind of the motivation for it. I guess prior to that, I was a good student. Um, I love school. I felt fairly kind of isolated at home and school was a place that I didn't feel isolated. School was a place that um that I could do I could do well at. And so I kind of took to it. And so generally school was a was a great place for me. Um, and so as I entered into middle school and high school, I I thought, well, I'm a good student. This is what I'll do. So that's kind of the, I guess, the the general idea of how I decided that I would be an accountant. So you had a dream. You worked hard. You accomplished it. You became an accountant. Why? Why bother with this writing thing? What 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 changed that got you interested in maybe maybe composing some fiction? What changed? Um, for sure, my son. When we were, me and my husband were planning um, to bring a child into the world, we wanted we wanted him to have books. And so we started buying books before he was even born. Um, and then at our baby shower, we asked people to, to bring books. And we got a bunch of classic books, right? Like all of, if you think about the books from your childhood, those are the books we got. And we were happy about that. And I, I think we were probably maybe two or three months after he was born, we had read most of the books to him. And I started having these like strong feelings that I wanted particular books. I would go, what if we had a book that did this or did that? And it would just be a passing thought. Um, and then for my husband's first Father's Day, I said, you know, I think it'd be nice to have a book bundle. And it would be great to have books that featured Black fathers and Black sons. I did not know at the time that that was very specific. I did not know at the time that that would be hard to find. I I was naive enough to think because I had not been in a children's book space in many years that I could just go look for these books and they would be there. And 
I went to look for that as a gift for my husband. I came home with no books. I was, I was shocked and I was upset. And this was, like I said, this was just over seven years ago. Um, I went to a local bookstore and there were all kinds of books with babies. None of them featured a black baby. None of them had a black father and a black baby. They were like black lions and I mean, it was all these other things, right? Animal books. Um, I was shocked and I was, I thought, well, okay, let me try again. So I came home, I started researching and I saw lots of, um, books that were like out of print or have been published by a small press, but not easily available to get. And even after I kind of collected those, I still did not come up with six books that fit this idea of what I wanted. And then I started to research (laughs) and I found all of these think pieces and infographics and articles that there is truly a disparity. And I thought, how come I didn't know this? Well, it's because I wasn't a part of the book world and it's because it wasn't top of mind. But there there are people out there at that time who had been kind of shouting about there's not enough books. There's not enough books that represent my family. Um, and so kind of randomly and ambitiously, I said, well, I'll write a book. Um, and so the first ones I wrote were, were not good at all. (laughs) The first one was about a a strong baby and it kind of was a representation of my son. Um, but from there I dove all the way in, I joined SCBWI, I found a critique group. And little by little, I started to learn more about the industry. I started working on my craft and I actually had lots of stores inside of me that I thought were a reflection of my community. So I kind of made a random decision to write. Oh, I love this. I love that you look around. You see, there's a clear need. There's a there's an absolute gap and you say, well, I'm, I'm going to do something about this and you do it. Um, but most importantly, um, but part of me wonders because we were talking about you look at statistics and data and say, well, what's going to sell? What's not going to sell? If you look around uh, a, a bookstore and say, well, it's all, you know, it's all white kid books. Um, so that probably won't sell. Did that ever occur to you that 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 creeping doubt that, well, that maybe that's just the way it is and I should leave it be and focus on other things? You know, I think after I became invested in the story, then I was just like, this is a story I want to write. And that's the story I will, you know, it, I think there was a bit of a shift. And I think being around other writers, you move toward the passion. And so at a point, the stories and the characters I created became a passion and they became a true representation of my community. And so from that point, I thought, well, this is a story I want to tell. And so I've got to push it because this is the story I want to tell. And so at a point, um, I do think information is important, but you also have to couple that with passion. And quite honestly, your passion has to win out because information can only get you so far, particularly in this industry. You have to, you have to be the person that reads it, edits it, care enough about it to get it wrong and try again. Um, You have to 
you have to push it even after it's acquired. You have to be the cheerleader for it. And so if you're only doing it because you think it, it fills a void or a hole, you won't get far because you have to, and then you have to talk about it over and over and you have to um, meet students and talk about it over and over. And so there has to be a deep passion for what you're doing. So at a point, the information kind of fell away and then it's like, okay, this is a story and this is a story I want to tell. And I'm passionate about these characters and these communities. And so let's push that. Um, so the passion probably for sure in this space is more important than the data. I'm going to ask a facetious question. An esteemed audience will know it's a facetious question because I'm raising a black son. I also went to the bookstore and said, "Now, what books can I get? Where, where, where are the books?" Um, so I, I, I I'm, I'm uh, somewhat aware of that experience, but facetiously asking because I want to hear you talk on it. Why is it important that there be books that feature black characters? What difference might it have made if, when you were young, going to the library with your stacks of Babysitter Club? Uh, books and then presumably other things if there had been more books featuring black characters so i think like the, the general answer is like representation matters and it, it matters mostly because you feel important when you see yourself or you feel like you can you can do more than one thing well if you see someone like you doing it um that's part of it the other part of it is there's lots of nuance that we don't get to see. So not only is a, a, a kid on the face of the book that's Black that looks like you or your neighbor or your cousin or your sister, um, seeing that life, seeing that kid's life brought to life in a book can help you feel more comfortable. So for example, in my, in my newest book, Not an Easy Win, that character um, lives in a multi-generational home um, I did too. I had no real thought about people living in a position where their finances were a problem and all children don't have that clear understanding. I didn't either, but I realized at a point we had to move in with my grandmother and I was embarrassed by that. I was a bit ashamed about that. Um, so not only is it important to see a kid on the face of a book that looks like yours, but if their story can mimic yours, you'll feel less ashamed, less embarrassed about some things that you want to hide. Um, I for sure would have felt more open and less kind of closed off by some of those things. Um, so it also validates who you are individually when you can see yourself um, represented in a way that eventually gets to hope because that's that's the beautiful thing about middle grade books for sure like and this one and this one of the reasons I love middle grade is because even if the ending isn't perfect you inject hope in the story and so the reader receives that hope so even if your story doesn't end perfectly even if when you close the book you have something going on in the helm behind you that book has put a little seed of hope in you and for sure, I think at many points in my life, that seed of hope would have um, made me seem, made me feel seen and validated um, and perhaps would have changed my like interior emotions as a kid. Now that you've got, um, well, one, but by the time esteemed audience is hearing this, two uh, seeds of hope out there in the world, 
what has been your favorite reader response? What kind of feedback have you gotten? Oh my goodness. Um, I'll share a couple. One is hilarious. And then, and then, and then one is a bit more like serious. So the one that's funny, my first book, Take Back the Block, it's about a kid named Wes and he's on a journey to save his neighborhood from a powerful developer. And so it talks a lot about gentrification, social justice. It touches on um, like housing insecurity and um, it talks about a kid trying to find his voice. It also was filled with a lot of friendship fun um, and friendship changes. And so all of these things kind of collide in the story of Take Back the Block. And the funny, funny story is um, I got a, a, a set of reader notes from a classroom that I was going to visit. And they sent me um, little short notes before I got to the classroom to visit. It was a virtual visit. And one of the kids said to me in the note, he goes, Wes is my son. He can't beat me in NBA 2K. And it was like this huge, it was like a note full of like all of this junk talk. And so Wes is a cool kid. He's fashionable. He's best dressed. He also loves video games. And so in one of the openings, um, I guess probably chapter three of the book, he and his friends are doing this video game tournament. And that's the piece that resonated with this kid. And it was hilarious because he had taken his personal <laughs> position against the main character to beat him in video games. And I, I mean, I, I think I laughed for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> I showed it to my husband <laughs> and I got defensive. I'm like, you can't beat Wes. <laughs> but I was, after all of that, I was really happy that he resonated with the kid, with his stylish nature and with video games, because then I hooked him, right? So now he has to read about the, the, the other things that happen in the book. Um, another reader note I got from a teacher, she said that her kids had got to pick novels that they wanted to read. One kid picked Take Back the Block. And he wrote a very long note um, and it was about his neighborhood and he had to move and he didn't understand why he had to move, but he was really upset about it. And um, he said he wished that he had some of the bravery that that Wes had that maybe he could get his home back. It was it was such an emotional letter. And it was so sweet. Of course, I don't know where he's from. I don't know his living situation. But after reading the book, he felt like he could be braver. And I mean, if that's all I can do, then I've done my work, right? So both of those were two different responses to the book, but they're both beautiful. They both still... Um, I love to this day, I, I laugh at the first one and I feel completely heartwarmed by the second one. Um, for the second um, student, I wrote him back a letter and um, I, I hope he received it. I sent him a couple things. But um, the first kid, I, I visited the class and I, I got to see him and I got to kind of junk talk him and we kind of went back and forth a little bit. But in both cases, they were able to see a, a piece of their life in the book. And that's the work. And, and that's how I know how important this work really is. Um, beyond the numbers, you get to you get to reach a kid who sees themselves in the book. And, and that's the work. 
on experience like that, even if you sold no other copies, which we know isn't true, because I believe Joe Biden's going to come on next week and say <laughs> our, our long national nightmare of not having more Crystal D. Giles book is over. Um, but even if even if you never sold another book, uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't that response be enough to have made the writing of it worthwhile? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I did tons of research um, in my own city that that book was really sparked by the changes happening in my own city. And it's kind of loosely based on that. And but and I did a bunch of research beside that. Um, I also had to do a bunch of research on video games <laughs> and all of that. And so every bit of the every bit of work that went into it, every bit of do I even know what I'm doing? Am I the right person to do this? Every bit of doubt and every bit of work was is totally worth it when you can reach someone um, who feels connected to the work in some way. So yes, so yeah, that's that's the that long answer to your question, but yes. Well, I personally research video games at least one to two <laughs> hours every day. <laughs> in fact, well, I'm, I'm curious now. Obviously, uh, this reader can't play a fictional character, but he could play you. Could you Could you win an, an NBA? No. I <laughs> Students ask me this all the time. The answer is no. So <laughs> I, I will do anything from... First, I ask my husband. He's a pretty good video game player. So I ask him... Um, I have the the terminology, how to say it just so, but no, um, I, the type of video games that I've ever played that I'm good at is like the fighting games when literally all you have to do is go and you just hope to knock the other person down or whatever. That's it. I, I understand that there's strategy, but I don't like the odds that you can lose. I, I don't know what it is. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a gamer. I'm just not. Um, so no, I would absolutely lose if anybody challenged me. No. I was uh, playing with my nieces and, and nephews late last year, and they were kicking my butt at some game I'd never seen before. But they had uh, Game Pass up. I was like, oh, look at this, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter. Oh, you're not going to beat me on this. I'm a kid of the 90s, baby. Side-by-side <laughs> -side fighters, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> so th that's the kind of thing that I feel like I do okay at. And then the they other stuff. feel incredibly old because they didn't know who the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> They're back. My son loves um, the Ninja Turtles. I mean, I don't know. They're, but they're back. They have new shows and everything. So, Well, that makes me feel a little yeah. bit better because I thought that was, that was sacred. That's like Shakespeare. It's <laughs> right. <laughs> but they're back. So my, my son loves them. So the, everything comes back. Um, so <laughs> 200 years from now, I want kids to be aware of Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so, um, well, I wanted to uh ask a little bit about how you get started because I know that when you when you get inspired, you look around the, the world and you say, There's this clear need, my son is gonna have this type of book, I'm gonna produce this book for him. I know you drafted Take Back the Block in 2017, and you're able to turn around in about five years, which every, not every writer, some some writers probably did it faster, but most writers listening are like, oh my God, how? How would you do that in, in, in five years? So when you get serious, what is what does your day look like when you when you say, all right, today's the day I'm going to start this? Well, that, so that's a good question. You know, I've met people who have been writing and on the journey to publication for a decade. 
And, um, and I think that there's power in that. I've listened to a lot of stories from people. I've, I've met some amazing critique partners through the years. And I, I listen and I take in as much information as I can. And then I'm, I'm also an information share. So I share as much as I can. And so I got lots and lots of rejections in the picture book space. That's where I started. That's where I thought I would be. So from that space, I learned that um, I had a lot more to say. And so when I got to the point where I drafted a novel, I allowed like the creativity to just kind of live on the page. I had never really done that. Um, and so it's like, I'm this strategic person in my in my day job. And then I get to not be strategic. I get, I get to just kind of play on the page. And so initially it was just really freeing. Then I, then I realized that I had to have some structure, right? The books have structure. So what I did is I checked out dozens of middle grade novels. And so what I would do is I would read one or two a week. I kept them in the, in the similar genre. And then after you've read 20 middle grade novels in the contemporary genre, you find that there's a formula, right? Um, some people break the formula, but for the most part, there's a general formula to the way it works. And so I started to kind of corral that creativity into the formula. Um, it's like, okay, well, the inside 10 moment happens right around here. And then you meet characters right around here. This is the midpoint. And so all of the general ways that people outline, except I didn't want to outline. So I would just kind of play on the page. So as I would write, I would go, okay, this is about where I am. This is this kind of thing should happen. Um, and so I had I had a lot of revision. <laughs> I had a lot of revision because. I didn't have enough structure. But after I started to understand the formula, I was like, okay, well, I'll work on the revision piece. And so I got to the point where the structure was a lot better. The pacing was off, but the structure was better. And then I had to work on voice, which is incredibly hard to do. Um, but then I'll, I read a bunch of more books, a bunch of books that were great at voice. And then I just started to really study what voice means in middle grade, what it sounds like what emotions you can evoke, all of those things. And then I just kind of self-taught how to do it better. And then, of course, I had some amazing people um, kind of help me along the way to read my work and tell me what parts were weak or not. Um, but similar to you at the time, I was working during the day. Um, I would write sometimes in the evening. Most of the time, my writing was done on the weekends, kind of early in the morning. Um, and so for that first novel, that's how it got done. Um, and honestly, for the second novel, I'm, I'm a full-time writer now, but I just made that transition um, during the pandemic. So prior to, I, I was only writing a little bit at a time because I, I, I didn't have time to, to really spend my days writing um, the way that I can now. I love that uh, you, the strategic analytical person, can't be bothered with an outline. No, we're just going <laughs> to. Did you read any formal guides on writing while you're doing that? Are you just sussing out the structure straight from those other middle grade books? Um, so first, I just structure came from other books. Um, and then I realized that I needed some 
some some more formal training. So I've I've done lots of like conference um, workshops and things like that to get more. I don't love um, this. Probably sounds bad. I don't love books that teach you how to write. I, I I don't receive much from that. I would rather just kind of read a book and figure it out on my own or listen to someone talk to me about it. So. I guess more of my craft training has come from workshops, trainings, conferences, and then just a lot of me kind of um, trying and failing. Writing is really where the place, the place where I get to be creative. So um, I have to, I have to find a balance because sometimes it's not um, effective to just kind of trial and error because you have to get it done a little bit faster. So the book that I um that I've started working on now, I, the first draft is done. That one I did the best outline that I've ever done, which is a very simple thing. Um and it wasn't it was kind of outlined kind of not. Um one other tool that I love is a beat sheet, which is where you can kind of put in the number of words that you have and it'll show you, it'll break it down by acts and by beats, kind of where things should happen. And so that's a general tool that I really like to use because I can say, okay, we're at the end of act one, what should have happened right here? And then act two, which you can kind of break into two acts, what's what's happening right in here? Am I, is there enough tension? Um are we getting close to the climax? Things like that. So I, I like those, but I, I I honestly don't love an outline. I and I do not do like the chapter by chapter outline. It's just not. It doesn't excite me. So I tend not to use them. Well, whatever you do, it's getting done. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm just gonna assume it's it's the right move. Um, when because uh, you've got a a a, a, a not a well, a relatively new child, new 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 baby. When you're getting serious about writing and and you're working as as often as you can, plus you've got your full time job at the same time. How are you carved? You don't have the affliction of being uh, addicted to the NBA uh, video games, um, so that's off the table. But how? What are you sacrificing to make time for writing? How are you finding time to get the writing done that needs done without everything else you've got going on? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Honestly, I probably sacrificed self-time and self-care for sure. I I became very um, passionate and ambitious toward this thing and I couldn't let it go. So Saturday mornings at the time before my son was awake or after he was awake and kind of playing, I would just write. Um, if I had any free time, I would write or revise. Um, oftentimes, especially at that time, I didn't have even a writing space or an office space. So I would be on the couch or at the dining room table and my son would be playing around me. There was noise in the background. I mean, <laughs> in those moments, I had no quiet. It was just a bit of a chaos and I would find a corner and I would write. Um, Oh, I would print out the story and be marking it up and circling things. And so I remember in those early days, if I had free time, that's what I was doing. And so I was sacrificing probably all of the personal time that I had. Um, 
And that became hobby for me. And I don't think I spent a lot of time doing anything else that would be considered fun. Um, and so for, for a couple years, that was it. Um, I will tell you that eventually I crashed in that. It's not sustainable to do that. Um, and the pandemic was the thing that really halted everything, but it also made me realize that I just did not have enough self-care. That I was putting way too much time into every facet of work and everything else. So that actually was a bit of a turning point for, for most people, right? But then particularly for me, because I was wrestling with, am I an author or can I do both? What, what am I doing? And I had to make a decision about where I wanted the next piece of my life to be. And, um, and so I decided to walk away from my, my full-time job. And it wasn't necessarily to become a writer. It was because I no longer loved what I was doing. And I wanted to put as much of my time and passion into doing something that I thought was um, meaningful and useful. And that brought me some level of joy because at, at a point, I don't think I had any joy. Everything was just kind of going down into this tunnel and I needed a way to kind of recapture some things that made me happy and put out a light into the world because I felt like at, a, at that point I wasn't doing it. So um, I sacrificed self-care for sure, but I can tell you any any writers listening, that's not sustainable. You cannot inject joy and hope and love into stories if you are not putting it in yourself. And so at, at a point, I just wasn't doing it. Um, I was just overwhelmed with everything around me. So now that um, we're, I don't know where we are in the pandemic, somewhere <laughs> in the middle, um, uh, hopefully heading out. Um, but now that you, that we're hopefully through at least the worst, everybody stay home and never, never see sunlight again, part of it. Um, what does your average routine look like? What do you do for self-care to make sure that you're not getting burnt out? Um, so I, when, when I'm drafting, I try to draft pretty frequently. Um, and so it's mostly, it's probably five days a week when I'm actually like drafting. And I try to do that early enough in the day that I'm not interrupted by other things. Um, I'm not an, an early morning person, but usually by, um, after my son's at school or something like that, then I do try to actively create. And so I do that first. Then there's lots of other things that happen during the day and, you know, um, emails, social media type stuff, or any other thing that comes with being an author that you have to do. Um, during my revision stage, it's kind of the same where I try to get that done as, as best I can really early. Um, and then sometimes doing revision, I really love if I get an, an idea or a spark, I'll revise in the evening, um, which actually ends up being really, really cool because I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I want to at that point. And so um, if, if I'm actively doing those things, I do them early um, when I'm not drafting or revising actively, then my day is just lots of author things, um, anything from school visits to emails to uh, making presentations or slides or whatever it is. Um, and so that's that's mostly my day now. Um, 
self-care, I read for pleasure. Um, of course, I don't know. I feel like all writers read. So I read for pleasure. Um, I like deep conversation. That's one of the things that really bring me joy. So friends, family, I just have time to just talk to and engage. I binge watch TV shows. Um, I also like to just have quiet time to think. And I think at a point, everything was so loud and it didn't give me time to do that. So now I get to have more time to think um, and process things, um, which eventually does help me create as well. Um, and then just spending time with friends and family too. So I feel like I'm, I, I feel like maybe I'm in a good place now. Gotcha. So uh, on an average day, you get up, uh, how much time are you going to spend writing, assuming you don't have a, a podcast like this on your schedule? Oh, man. Um, if I can do an hour uninterrupted, then I'll take a break and then I can come back and do another hour break, hour break. So at any point, if I can get three hours early in the daytime, that's usually a good goal for me. Um, and then everything after that, sometimes I don't get sometimes I don't get that. Sometimes I'm doing something else or I get caught up. Um, I, I can be very detail oriented. And so sometimes if I'm too focused on the details, I need to walk away and I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that. I usually know when I need to, to take the break. So particularly with like revising, you can't do that for hours and hours on end because everything gets blurry and, and you, you're not, you're not helping yourself after that. So I, I usually will know when it's time for me to take a break. So Three solid hours with some breaks is is pretty is pretty good for me. Um, I'm not one of those people that will work for nine hours straight writing. That's just not who I am. Um, yeah, you seem too happy for that. <laughs> <laughs> I also write fairly short books, so maybe that's it. I mean, if I had to write a ninety thousand page novel, perhaps I would I wouldn't have a choice, but. I could I could not imagine writing for like nine or ten hours straight. Like I see some people do. It's like wow. Um, maybe one day. Maybe that's something to aspire to. I don't know. Just jokes, long, long form writers. <laughs> Come on the show. Tell me your secret about a happy ten hour workday. <laughs> Absolutely, because I I would love to hear it. And anything is, you know, I'm not afraid of the work. But I don't. Wow, my brain would be mush. I don't know what I would even be doing after that long um yeah yeah i've done the all night write-a-thon and like i feel good ish afterward like look how long i worked but then when i go to revise like oh okay well these first few pages are pretty good and then what what is this i'm gonna cut all of this you could have just played video games for the mush <laughs> that you created here at the end <laughs> maybe maybe i'll figure that out <laughs> without doing it because i feel like yeah, I, I would. It would be ineffective for sure. <laughs> and then, um, well, you mentioned uh, revising, and, and I agree, especially in the the later terms when you've been looking at something for too long. The best way to do it is maybe one or two chapters a day, and then do something else. Are you able to revise one project while you're drafting another? No. I tried to do that with this latest novel um, and I couldn't do it. 
I thought I could do it. And I really tried to do it this time and I couldn't do it. So what I have to do if I need to draft and revise, I have to do like a week of each. So it's like, okay, this week I'm going to be drafting this novel and then um, take a couple of days off. And then this week I'll be revising this one. I don't, I can't do both. Um, and I thought I could do it, but I haven't been able to. Maybe one day I will, but I, I haven't been able to to draft and revise at the same time. I'm I'm too much in the in the voice of the character. I write um first person. And so my stories are very voicey. And that's one of the things that I really um love about the way I draft. So I'm too much in the head of my character to to draft and then go revise first person and another person's voice. I, 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 that's just a bit too much for me. Gotcha. Your voices would end up bleeding together. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I haven't been able to. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not against trying, but I haven't been able to. Uh, I put a lot of effort into it this time. I thought, yeah, l- let me not do that. So I usually break it up. I, I stop give myself a day or two and then, and then start on something different. Yeah, no, it's mostly aspirational for me. If it's a very <laughs> uh, late draft, like if the, the hardcore revising has been done, I'm very certain this is the story. This is the character at this point. I'm just checking language that I can do while drafting something else, but actually yeah, that that's five, six drafts down the, the road. That's not early revising where you're still, you're still writing and fixing the the crap that you put down the first time that you thought was good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I should project yeah. onto you. That's what I'm doing. I'm sure all of your first drafts are gold. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I told you I don't outline. So you can imagine that first draft is kind of me telling myself something. Um, so... <laughs> And then, uh, so 2018, after you're you're getting serious about writing, you become a We Need Diverse Books uh, mentee. Um, so what is that process and how does that help you? Um, so at that point, I was still really heavy into wanting to publish a picture book first. I thought that was the path. And so I was drafting my novel. I had drafted Take Back the Block Um but I wasn't sure what to do with it. Um, I felt like, okay, it's done. What do I do? But I had all of these other picture books that I thought were polished and ready. So I applied for We Need Diverse Books um, for the mentorship. And so you submit, I think it's a personal statement. You submit a sample of your work. Um, and then I think you you talk a bit about why you need this. And at the time, I wasn't getting any traction in terms of agent um, queries and I felt like my stories were needed and good, but I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, and so I guess lots of authors just kind of call that like, you know, you're <laughs> you're in the trenches, right? Like you're you're trying your best to get someone to take notice. So we need diverse books at that time. Um they are amazing. They still are amazing. They do so much more now than they were doing, man. It's, it's just a beautiful organization and they have everything from grants. Um, now that, I mean, they, they fund editors into the industry, um, young writers, they do so much now, but at the time, one of their major things was, um, their mentorship program. And so I applied for it with a picture book text and I got in 
And it was such a confidence boost because after you've been rejected over and over and over and over, you kind of just lose confidence. And at that time I was thinking, do I have stories people want to read? Like, I don't know. So it was a huge confidence boost. I got to work with an amazing mentor who really just told me about her experiences in the industry. Um, She kind of let me know that rejection not only happens before you get an agent, it happens well into um, your whole career. Over and over and over, you get rejected. Over and over and over, (laughs) you're in this waiting process. And, um, And so it just helped me be more, not just confident in my words, but my experience in the process wasn't unique. It it happens this way. And so during that experience, I kind of got back my excitement to write. And so I pulled out the novel that I had written and I started to revise it. Um, And so I was working on a couple different things with picture books and the novel. Um, And I think, I think during that mentorship, it actually helped push me toward the novel even more. Why are we doing this, Crystal? There's not nearly this much rejection in finance. (laughs) (laughs) See, the thing is, in the finance world, there's a correct answer. Like, it's black and white. You, you, You do the work, you get a result. And so for a very long time, I I couldn't figure out how come I'm doing the work. And then the answer is elusive. (laughs) And I I still have that feeling occasionally. It's like, wait, this is how it's supposed to work. How come the outcome isn't this? (laughs) I don't know. Every uh, rejection you ever received. No, no. I wrote the book. I sent it to you. At this point, you represent it and sell it. Go on. Do the thing. <laughs> exactly. Let's uh let's talk not an easy win. Um, because I could I could ask you more writing questions. I probably will before we're done, but I want to make sure we mention not an easy win that is newly released. Uh true to my word, I will not make you suffer through me summarizing your book. <laughs> what uh, what does the esteemed audience need to know about not an easy win? Um, so not an easy win. It's it's a book that I love and it's personal to me. I will try to explain what it is. I have a hard time um, putting it into one sentence. Um, so not an easy win is about a 12 year old boy named Lawrence. He he needs a win. He's had he's had some rough things happen in his life. The book opens when he is expelled from school. He has been in fights, um, fights that are not his fault. Um, he's in a new town and he just doesn't fit in. He doesn't feel like anyone pays him any attention. No one's listening to him. And so in the opening chapter of the story, he gets expelled and he has to find something to do. Um, he has a granny who he and his family have moved in with in this small town. And um, she's kind of no nonsense. Some people would call her mean. I don't think she's mean, but you know, she's kind of no nonsense. Um, and Lawrence eventually finds a, a rec center and he goes to that rec center looking just for anything. And he ends up helping out there. And he also enters this world where these kids play chess. And so he learns competitive chess at the rec center. 
Um, and throughout the story, he learns one how to play chess, but then also he uses lots of those thoughts and skills to become better um, with managing his feelings and managing his behaviors. So um, that's the kind of the general plot. He's trying to become good enough to play in this tournament back in his hometown. Um, the other portion of the book that I, I love to highlight almost more than the general plot is the emotional journey that the character goes on. In the start of the book, he realizes that people perceive him in a negative way. And I think in some ways, those negative perceptions, um, he's starting to internalize. And he has a bit of a rough time because his family is experiencing some levels of poverty. I don't know if he understands totally, but he definitely understands that um, his life is different um, than it was back in his hometown. His father is also incarcerated. So he has these feelings and emotions of missing his dad, but he also is a bit em embarrassed and ashamed of their current living situation. So throughout the story, he, he kind of explores those things. Um, the beautiful thing though, is that he learns how to tell his own story. And so throughout the, throughout the book, he's gaining confidence, he's gaining knowledge, but he's also gaining the ability, the ability to see himself for who he is and not have the negative perceptions that people are kind of pushing on him. And so by the end of, by the, end of the story, he has the ability to, to tell his own story and see himself um, in a completely different way, um, which is probably my favorite part of the whole thing. And this, this is an episode worth watching on YouTube, esteemed audience, because you can see on Crystal's face as she uh, describes this emotional journey, just, just how much it does mean to her. Um, although you can probably hear it in her voice also. Uh, whatever you're doing, esteemed audience, it's fine. Continue to enjoy the show. Um, so are you a chess player? I am not a chess player. <laughs> I had to do so much research um, for the chess component of this book. I learned how to play chess as a kid, and I wasn't very good at it. I don't know why I wasn't, but I wasn't. And so I came up with the idea for the chess component. Um, some years ago, I was watching a documentary on a grandmaster and how chess just kind of changed his perspective on life in general. And he wanted to go back into his city to teach young kids. And so I thought, well, that's a really interesting kind of idea to put in a book, I thought. And so many years ago, I kind of saw that and I kind of just tucked it away. And so when I was um, creating Lawrence's world, I wanted to give him a hobby or something interesting to do. And so I thought about chess. And so then I had to research it. So, I mean, I did everything. I bought a chess head and, you know, I'm practicing moves and everything. I looked at chess forums. <laughs> I read like how-to books. Um, and so I did a lot of things to make the chess element in the book real, but I'm not very good. And my husband teases me that some, some young reader is going to challenge me <laughs> to a game and that I will lose. I, I don't know. I mean, I probably will, but I, I do know, I do know how to play. I'm just not that good at it. You and I are going to do an in-person meeting and we're going to play NBA on PlayStation and then we're going to play chess. It's going to be a good afternoon. <laughs> and then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trash you and I'm going to walk away. And say, it wasn't an easy win. And it's going to be, it's going to be cool, dry delivery. It's going to be great for me. 
A hundred percent. And and I'm telling you, this is going to happen. I mean, I just, right. Anyway. <laughs> well, now I'm going to get my butt kicked because I talk trash on a, on a podcast <laughs> and I, you know, I set myself up. <laughs> so you write uh, in the afterword that you lived in a multi-generational, multi-generational home. Uh, and you also grew up with a parent who was absent and often incarcerated. Um, how does that shape how you characterize Lawrence? What do you want to express to the world through this story about, about that experience? You know, I when I first started writing this story, it felt personal, but it didn't feel like deeply personal. And then in revision, you get to know the character, you get to really fill in the elements of their life and their voice. And I realized that it was deeply personal for me. Um, and I thought I had a, a real life experience that I could inject into the story. And so I'm not a 12 year old boy, apparently, but I thought that some of the feelings and emotions that I had as a, as a young child, I could put real life on this page. Um, and so like I said earlier, there were points in my life where me and my siblings moved in with um, my grandmother. And there were even also different places in my life where um, we had other family move members move in with us. And so at each of points in my life, I felt a little bit embarrassed or ashamed by that because it felt a bit like well, why can't we do it on our own? And I and I did not understand the full financial impact, but I absolutely had some level of understanding that this is must not be how normal people live. And so I was kind of taken by the idea of what normal living must be like. And so that's the same way that I think um, Lawrence feels at a point in the book. He also has this revelation that normal isn't real. No one's life is quote unquote normal. Everyone in every family has things that they deal with. Um, so I thought I could bring a real perspective to that. Um, and then when I decided to have a story where the pop was incarcerated, I thought about it from a couple perspectives. One, I thought about, we talk a lot about mass incarceration. We talk a lot about kind of these unfair disparities with Black families being torn apart because of mass incarceration. And but we don't always talk about the impact on the family and, the, and particularly the children. And so I have the, uh, the experience of one writing for children, but then also having had that experience myself, I felt like I could really put a real life experience in a book and relate to so many of these children. I think at one point, the statistic was one in 26. Um, I can't remember exactly. I, I, I won't say the statistic because now because now I've just confused myself with, with what it was. But lots of children experience life with either a family member, um, a, like a direct family member or a distant family member having been incarcerated. And so I decided that I would put that experience in this book because it's one that I felt like I could give some authenticity to. Um, and so what I want the audience to see is that Lawrence loves his dad. He doesn't view him in a negative light. He just misses him. And there's a true impact with his pop being away and what happens to the family. 
And not all young readers will absolutely understand um, that large impact. They'll see they'll see the emotional impact. But as a reader, particularly if you're an, an adult reading the book, you'll see that this family is having some financial struggles because of this larger phenomenon. Um, and so I, I thought that I could bring all of that to the story um, and present it in a way that felt authentic. Well, this is the United States. We lock up everybody except our rich people and our politicians. So there's 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 plenty of readers, I'm sure, who, who will be able to identify. I uh, put this down as uh, the award for this year's most obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does this background, you think, shape? Obviously, Lawrence's background is different than yours, but because financial uh, burdens were a concern for you, you do you think that's part of what makes you gravitate toward becoming an accountant, getting to where the money is? <laughs> you know, I would I would probably say yes. Um, I would probably also say it helps me want to solve a problem and it drives me toward a solution. And I think and I think accounting does that. I also think in a way storytelling does that um, in my entry into the writing space where it's like, well, if, if I can help be a solution or if I can help solve a problem, then let me do that. So I, I, I definitely think there's lots of connections to that um, with problem solving and being solution driven. So, yeah, I think both of those things probably connect for sure. This has been a uh, uh, psychological interpretation <laughs> with Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, in the acknowledgments, you also write that the sophomore book struggle is real. And during a pandemic, no less, I learned a lot about myself as a writer and as a person during the creation of this book. And I'm better because of it. What did you learn about yourself and what does the pandemic bring to your, your sophomore? What, what's the sophomore book struggle and how does a pandemic <laughs> exacerbate it? So I think when you when you write a, your first book or the debut novel, you have had all this time to write it. So and seemingly with less pressure um, than looking at a contract because you're hoping that someone will love it. For my second book, I was kind of I was already under contract. And so it's like there's a little bit of pressure there to actually produce it. Also, just from like a logistic standpoint, you are editing a, a novel, you're promoting it, you know it's coming into the world, but you're also trying to draft something different. And so that's part of it as well. And then, like I said, bring the pandemic into it where, you know, when when we went home <laughs> in um, March of 2020, my son at the time was um, in preschool his school closed, I think in April, me, my husband, my son were all at home. Me and my husband were working full time. And then we had to teach and entertain um, a four-year-old at the time. And then um, he turned five that summer and he started kindergarten. Well, there was no school. And so virtual kindergarten was absolutely oh my goodness, like every day was harder than the day before. Um, all while I was promoting a book and working full time <laughs> and also trying to draft something else. And so, like I said, at times it, it was just absolute chaos. Um, 
And then because everything that's happening around that time from kind of this racial reckoning to the pandemic, everything else seems small. Like nothing that you're doing on a day-to-day basis feels as important as what's happening in the world. So it was just very hard to focus on creating. Um, And so that's why kind of this pandemic and sophomore book struggle kind of crashed into what was very hard. Um, What I learned about myself is that um, I'm strong and I can persevere. And I wanted this story to come into the world in an authentic way. And so that means I had to work really hard to do it. I also learned that I had lots of deep emotions that I had kind of suppressed. And so as a writer, if you decide to write about something that's personal to you, those feelings may come back into the picture. And so that happened to me. And I thought, oh, wow, I've got to figure out a way to deal with these emotions, but also tell this story. Um, and I, I I had a bit of a challenge doing that. Um, and then I didn't want to release the book. I felt so personally tied to it. So then I had to come to like the realization that this is the story I want to tell and I've got to release it. And so then I had to do some work to be able to release everything that I put into the book out into the world. So all of those things happen. So in that sentence where I say, you know, the sophomore book struggle, and then I, I learned a lot about myself and I'm, and I'm better because of it, all of that is stuffed into kind of that sentence. I live in this deep fantasy that one day I'm going to write something in which my deep emotional issues don't come into play. <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to happen. That no matter what I do to prevent that, there they are. That's, that's somewhere, some part of you needs to get them out and they're, they're coming out through the page. Absolutely. I did not expect that. And I thought, well, and then now it's like, well, of course that would happen. But, you know, you hope not. And then I think, oh, it's okay. I've disguised it enough. No one will ever recognize it. And of course, it's the first thing a reader will ask you about. <laughs> Which is why I decided to write the author's note. It, it was important to me. And I also wanted to talk directly to the reader. I think I think that's the part that I felt like representation is important and authenticity is important. It's like, let me just talk to my reader. And so it's a short, it's a short author's note, but um, I decided to do it. And I decided to just be um, transparent and authentic because if you're reading this book, I want you to know that I get it. I've been there and beyond everything else and not to sound cheesy, but like you can do the things you can become whatever you want to become. You can be good at more than one thing. You can take everything in your life that you've been embarrassed or ashamed about or that doesn't make sense and you can create something different. And that's what I wanted to say to my reader. Um, and I, I would have loved to have someone say that to me as a 11 or 12 year old. So that's why the letter to me was important that it be personal um, and it's short, but it's enough of how I feel that I hope that it connects with the reader. What do you think gets in the way of people recognizing that truth? What got in your way? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't think I saw it. I did not hear enough truth as a young person. I, I heard bits of truth. And I and I think I had some realizations, but I didn't have a, enough people talking directly to me about truth. And I think when we hide truth from, from our young people, 
We're doing them a disservice. Young people can handle truth. They live it. So we serve them so much more genuinely when we have conversations with them, help them process things. And so I, I didn't have the benefit of really having conversations that help me process. And so lots of times I would just push it to the side or push it over here. And, um, you know, I, I found something I was good at and I was able to kind of, you know, carry my life forward with the help of, you know, family members. But I think when we aren't honest with our young people and we don't give them the benefit of conversation and truth, um, they may not get it. And, and I think, and I think that's a disservice. So uh, two books now, uh, both with um, young male protagonists, uh, which is fine. You write about whatever you want. I write about worms. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but what is it you think that 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 draws you toward uh, a young male protagonist? And do you have plans to write about a young female protagonist or even a, an adult female protagonist? Yes. Yeah, so I'll answer the first, the second part first. My my third novel um, has a young girl as a main character. And it's a beautiful book about her and her best friend, who's also a girl. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, I have no idea about release date, but um, the draft is finished and I am I'm working on it. So, um, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of why I write the first couple books have been um, boy characters. Um, I think I think a couple things. One, I think um, my son is at the forefront of my mind and he's he's with me. And so I think that's part of it. Also, um, between me and my husband, I think we have 10 nephews. And at different points in my life, um, the nephews on my side of the family, I even we even live together. I helped raise a couple of them. And so I think in some ways I have the hopes, hurdles, struggles, emotions, joy, happiness of young boys just in the forefront of my mind. Um and I see, I see that we don't get a clear view of emotional, sensitive, silly, but also sometimes troubled Black boys in a complete picture. We often get this negative, singular narrative. And so I thought that I could bring this complex picture into a book and, and give you all of the things that I know black boys can be. And so for whatever reason, both of these stories came to me with a young black boy at the center of it. Um, and I suppose it was a choice, but also they were the best um, vehicle or character for the story. Um, and so I absolutely have, like I said, a girl story coming, but I, I don't, I don't know if it's deep. Maybe it's deep. Maybe, maybe it's just because they were who came to me at the forefront of the story. But I do feel like um, I'm equipped to write from that perspective just because, um, like, I know these kids, you know, part, part of them are me, but also I, I know these kids. And so I, I feel equipped to do that. Crystal D. Giles, have you ever seen a ghost stand or a flying saucer? <laughs> No and no. Fair enough. Well, you keep. I, I mean, I think I, I think I believe in ghosts, flying saucers. I'm not sure. Also, we've had a lot of weird things in our airspace lately. So, um, so no and no. 
yeah, reminder, esteemed audience, we're recording this February 17th, and uh, the government's being real cagey about what kind of unknown objects they're shooting down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new, what's new as we record this, a new documentary I was just checking out on Hulu, and the first about flying saucers, and there's Christopher uh, Mellon, the former, um, I believe he was the director of the, de the Department of Defense uh, on there, and then Chris Senator Kristen Gillibrand. Oh, oh, this is not just another uh, UFO documentary. This is, this is these are serious folks. So we live in interesting times. We shall see. We absolutely live in interesting times. <laughs> so I'm um, watching our time. It's it's flown away from us, which which always happens when with a great conversation. I've I've so enjoyed this, and you're going to write more books. So I hope that one day we'll we'll do this again, and we'll meet in person, and you'll kick my butt at chess and at, at NBA. <laughs> Uh, on PlayStation, just because I, I have it coming. Fair enough. Um, for today, my final question for you is, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful to you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a difference and might make a difference for everybody who's watching or listening to us, what would you go back and tell yourself? Um, You know, I think I would tell myself that one, to trust the process. I am a person who likes to control the outcome. Um, this probably goes back to the whole solution-driven thing. I would probably tell myself to just trust the process, that the way things play out are the way they're supposed to, and you can't control all of it. So enjoy the process. Be as present as you can along the journey. Um, and it's okay. It's okay not to control every piece of it. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Uh, Crystal, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? I am on Instagram at Crystal D. Giles. Um, it's just my whole name. On Twitter, I am at Creatively Chris. Um, you can also type in Crystal D. Giles and I'll pop up. And then my website is crystaldgiles.com. So I'm, I'm fairly easy to find. Um Take it back. The block is available now. Um, by the time you hear this, not an easy win will also be available to you um, wherever books are sold. By the time esteemed audience hears this, not an easy win will already be uh, the best-selling book uh, ever released. <laughs> <laughs> it will also have preemptively won every award. Uh, all the award shows, all the all the awards are going to say, you know what? We know there's more books coming this year. We don't need them. This is the one. <laughs> Absolutely. We're putting that right into the universe. <laughs> 212 episodes. Didn't they go by in a blink? Uh, esteemed audience, uh, please keep an eye at middlegradeninja.com for updates. Thanks again for listening to the show or for watching the show and for supporting it through so many years. Thanks again to all of the incredible guests who've made this show what it was. And God willing, I'm alive. I hope to see you soon.